Greetings and thank you again for joining us for Engage Your World as we continue our series of Early Church Evangelism in the Book of Acts. Today we're going to jump into Acts chapter 5. We're going to cover the second half of the chapter. So for those familiar, the beginning of chapter 5 is Ananias and Sapphira, that story. I know many of you are going to be familiar with these passages, but for those that aren't, we'd like to, at least with these shorter ones, be able to record and you can hear. So as we go through the episode, you'll be able to uh, have some reference there. If you want to, this would be a good time to pause and you could read through the chapter yourself, this section. But for right now, Ibrahim, if you would read chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. Sure thing. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the consensus and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. 
and all who follow him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. All right, thanks for reading that, Ibrahim. What an interesting passage here. I think it's really exciting to see how this evangelistic outreach began, in many ways, very organically, as the church was being founded here. And so here in Acts chapter 5, we see that the apostles are continuing the work that Jesus had started, and they're doing these signs and wonders, which is simultaneously drawing crowds, affirming the message that they're teaching, but also causing a lot of problems here with the religious leaders, as we see. So it gets very interesting, and it provides opportunities for them to share, both because of the people who are following, the people who are seeing this, but then also Even when it becomes problematic, that just becomes a new opportunity for them to share to a different group of people. So it's amazing to see how God works in all these different contexts. So let's dive in using our acronym. We'll start here with G. So G is gauge your audience. So as we look here in Acts chapter 5, there's sort of two audiences. First, there's all the people who were following them, who were experiencing these miracles following the apostles' teaching. But the primary focus of the chapter is not those individuals, but what happens because of the miracles and the message that they're teaching about Jesus, which the religious leaders are not liking. And so the main audience here for the bulk of this passage is those religious leaders. And as we look at it, what seems to come out is that these religious leaders are very jealous They may dislike the message that they're teaching, and that's certainly a problem. But I think what we're finding is that they're actually jealous that these common men are ending up having the ability to perform miracles that I think the religious leaders would say, if anybody should perform, it would be them. They should be the ones that have this power, not these common fishermen. And I think that's an important element to keep in mind as we read in the New Testament, but here in the book of Acts in particular, that there was a significant um, distinction between those who were supposed to do religious teaching and those who were just supposed to benefit from it. And so not being formally trained, not being formally educated these men, Peter and the others, were not supposed to be doing this kind of thing. And I think we have to keep that in mind. They're not focused on the fact they are. They're focused on the fact, yeah, but you shouldn't be able to. You're not the right kind of people to do this. So it's very interesting. That's who I'd say our audience is. As we look at O, Offer Common Ground, 
as Peter goes into this speech, well, first of all, they're arrested. They get put in prison and then they get out and they're trying to figure out, okay, what happened? So the guards are afraid, but so are the religious leaders. The religious leaders, if we see here in verse 26, the captain and the officers brought them, being Peter and the others, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So there's this big crowd of people that love what the apostles are doing, but the religious leaders and these guards are trying to stop them. But it's a very complicated scenario because it's not as easy as just stopping them by force because they might end up having the crowds inciting a riot and the crowds could overpower them. And so it's a delicate situation here. You make an interesting point here, Matt, regarding the crowds, which really impacts the events in the narrative. To summarize, for the religious leaders causing a public outrage would backfire. It would severely undermine their purposes of stopping the spread of the gospel message, one. Two, it would turn the people against them. Three, it could likely turn the Roman governmental uh, and legal authorities against them if things got out of hand. So had the, uh, for our purposes, religious establishment engaged in any form of public persecution of these two brave followers of Christ, they were not about to win a popularity contest among the people. So there is a lot that is at stake, and that goes into this writer's mention that the leading religious authorities were afraid of the crowds. Back to you, Matt. I think the apostles found themselves in this situation a lot, where you've really got this thing brewing, and you can see why the Romans wanted to suppress it, because it was just a powder keg, and they just wanted to get rid of the problem. They didn't really care about the squabbles. I imagine they saw it more as just these little inner religious squabbles between people that they weren't really interested in, but it was potential to cause them a lot of problems as the people trying to keep peace in the area and keep things under control. And these interesting dynamics emerge. And I think we definitely see that in our own lives. We're going to have people that are, you know, they'd be willing to hear, but but maybe not that interested right away. And then we're going to have some people who might even be hostile. And if we're intentional, we're prayerful, we really learn how to handle those different scenarios. Even in those hostile scenarios, we can learn how to ask questions and how to understand where's that hostility coming from. If all we were doing was quoting Bible verses and that's it, obviously there's going to be situations where that's just going to cause a ton of problems. But if we learn to be flexible in our approach, which means it's not always going to be us telling. It might shift to us asking a lot more. And especially in those hostile situations, that may be where we need to ask even more. And so I think that's definitely something to keep in mind. Uh, this is something we try to emphasize in our live trainings or even on our, in our web sessions when we did that during COVID. Asking questions is a welcome contrast, isn't it? In today's culture, a common experience is that people only want others to listen to them while they are not willing to listen to the views of others. So asking questions works well in managing potentially aggressive dialogue encounters. Thinking about that, Ibrahim, when you mentioned that about today, we do have an opportunity to be that contrast in a world where most people don't want anything but for you to hear their opinion and accept it, to be able to have strong convictions, but also to be able to listen to somebody and learn where they're coming from, I think is a valuable skill and really gives us an opportunity to stand out and to say, wait, there's something different about that person. They have strong convictions about what they believe, but they're willing to listen and hear what I think as well. And, and I've gotten that comment and I know others who've gotten the same that 
they just don't really have an opportunity to have an actual interactive dialogue where you can disagree but still have a productive conversation. And so the more we can do that, it's not always going to go that way, obviously, but the more we can be available and willing to do that, the more of an impact we're going to have. And I think God will use that to give us unique opportunities. And we see here how when we think about the O, the offer common ground. So we have our audience. We know this is a hostile. We know that they simultaneously are afraid of what they're teaching and they want to stop them. But they're also afraid of taking too drastic of measures to stop them because they're afraid that then the people are going to turn on the religious leaders and the guards. But in offering common ground in this section, what Peter actually does is he stands up and he says – do we obey God or men if we have to choose which one? And of course, <laughs> this is putting the religious leaders in a quandary because what would they do if they had to obey God, if they were being faithful, if it's about obeying God or obeying men, they would obey God. He challenges them saying, which is right to listen to, a man or God? Now, of course, the religious leaders are going to want to contend probably, yeah, but you're not really hearing from God because you couldn't. And so Peter uses that, we must obey God rather than men, phrasing it as a direct statement, but it's really sort of a challenge and a question. So Peter uses the initial statement that's a challenge to them of what's right to obey God or men to get them to listen to, I think, the rest of what he says. And so he says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now, Obviously, that is going directly after them, uh, but it's drawing this contrast of these religious leaders, rather than accepting who God had sent, accepting the Messiah, they not only rejected him, but they killed him. But he says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses of, the, of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. So, we see a couple of the elements here happening. They're offering common ground in that they're appealing to events that are known. They're appealing to the importance of following God and obeying God, which these religious leaders are going to understand. And they know these events that happen and the importance of what the Messiah would be. And so that's the offering common ground. But then he also uses it to start to shift to and provide evidence. So we see a lot kind of coming together here. So S is shift to Christianity, the gospel. P is provide evidence. So Peter kind of consolidates a lot of this in saying and stressing, we were witnesses to these things. These actually happened. You know of these events. We were witnesses to these things. What else could we do but obey when we've seen what Jesus did and we experienced the miracles that he did? And now they're doing some of those very same miracles. So what power could be doing that other than God? Matt, just to make things a bit more interesting as we do in our live trainings, let me play the skeptic here because uh, one common motif that keeps coming up over the past few episodes is miracles. That's something we take for granted as Christians. We believe in supernatural um, things can happen if God exists. And you and I have been in conversations where a question or an objection is raised and we had to respond on the fly before redirecting the conversation back to the original topic. And it happens frequently with people like Jehovah's Witnesses or maybe with your skeptical friends or what have you at work. But let's say we're talking with someone uh, a colleague over lunch break, and the conversation gets sidetracked. And for the sake of discussion, let's assume 
you're on the subject of miracles and your friend is not convinced that the miracles recorded in the scriptures were actual events. So he raises a question, how do we know these miracles really happened? You show him how, uh, why you think these miracles happened or what have you. And then he offers a further objection to say, or a question, the apostles claim to be eyewitnesses, but how do we know that all of the apostles saw the miracles? So pay attention to all of the apostles had to see the miracles. So he's setting up a criteria in effect to say, in order for the miracle claims to be considered authentic or actual or viable or valid, uh, all of the apostles have to have seen those miracles and that needs to be reported in this text. So um, you probably never run into that objection because it's sort of an unreasonable, I, I sort of fabricated that and made it more unreasonable <laughs> so that you could sort of deal with it. So how would uh, one in a 30 second response deal with this objection or this question? How do we know that all of the apostles saw the miracles happen? Alternatively, was it necessary for all of the apostles to have witnessed the miracles in order for the report to be true? I would tend to think he's saying he and the other apostles were witnesses to these things. However, we read in other places the apostles directly challenged the religious leaders with this, that they know about these events. So whether they saw them all directly, they know of them, they know of people who saw them. And this is why it's such a problem for the religious leaders and the guards. There were so many people that are seeing these things that they can't just hush it away. They can't say, oh, that's three crazy people out in the wilderness. Nobody else saw that other than the people who claimed to be a part of it. These are things that hundreds and thousands of people have seen, and so it's not as easily silenced. So that was a quick diversion, sort of like what you would run into in a real conversation. So, Matt, thanks for that, and we'll pick up where you left off. So when they hear this appeal that Peter makes of obeying God, seeing these things happen, that the Holy Spirit is also a witness, and they have to obey God, not these religious leaders, they are enraged and they want to kill him. But there's this wise Pharisee, Gamaliel, who raises up and he's held in honor. It says that he's a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people. Now, that probably means the religious leaders and the people, the common people, right? I'm assuming. So this is a man who a lot of people, a wide range of people have respect for. And so he's someone whose words are very wise. So when he says, men of Israel, take care for what you are about to do to these men. And then he references back to, look, there were other people that have raised themselves up claiming to be something significant, claiming to have even been the Messiah we know of in the past. And yet there was nothing actually substantive to it. God was not behind it. And so it just fell apart. So if it's fake, we don't need to worry ourselves with being the ones to end it exclusively. It will come to an end itself. But if it is actually true... And if God is actually behind it, then we're not going to be able to stop it. And maybe implied, nor would we want to. And we do know some of the religious leaders did come to believe and did become disciples of Jesus, accepted him as the Messiah. And so it's not as though universally everyone is corrupt and merely thinking about their own power and rejecting. And so what Gamaliel shares here is this very interesting response to say, if what these men are teaching is true, we're not going to be able to stop it if God is behind it, if God is with them. And if God is not with them, it will most likely fizzle itself out. 
and we know from history what the result is. It'd be interesting to have a conversation with Gamaliel at the end of his life. What did he end up really understanding and believing? I don't know of anything that documents that, but maybe it's out there. I'm just unaware. Another note that is important is that the religious leaders took the advice of Gamaliel, but they still punished the apostles. It wasn't like they just let him go scot-free, right? Right. They just didn't go as extreme as I think they wanted to because they wanted to kill him, but instead they just gave him a thorough beating, and it was supposed to just be an intimidation thing. It's like, okay, well, we can't kill you because then the people will come after us, but we can at least give you enough of a thrashing that will intimidate you from speaking again. Now, that ends up backfiring because we read in verse 41 that they were rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. So it ends up actually lighting more of a fire in the apostles rather than stopping them from going on. Okay, verse 41 into 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That'd be the name of Christ. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Matt, I don't know about you, but out of all of the passages we have read today, this one stands out to me because it reinforces the point that for the early church and for us, we hold a life-changing message for which we can be grateful and of which we can be excited to share with others. I believe Peter, John, and the other Christ followers— Chief motivation for evangelism was their conviction that the message was true. The disciples were utterly convinced of its truth, and they stopped at nothing to spread that message because they knew the implications of it. But if we're being honest, the reality is that sharing the saving message of Christ in our time can be intimidating and difficult at times. To say the least, in today's culture, the gospel is seen as outdated, irrelevant, or at best, a fairy tale. But beyond that, it can also be costly. We're seeing right here, right before our eyes, as we read the biblical text, and for those of us who are listening on our commute, we're hearing it with our own ears as we follow along. So I'm sure, Matt, you would agree that we cannot gloss over the fact that there exists real opposition out there, but we can ask God to empower us to be brave and effective witnesses to others, even in less than ideal circumstances, knowing that sometimes it may cost us. I know of a prominent local figure for whom being a Christian cost him his career, and many of us are aware that worldwide, many Christians have even paid with their lives because of hostility to its message. I think a lot of people characterize Christianity as a cakewalk, but there's no such thing as a Christian cakewalk for the truly committed believer and messenger of Christ. Still, we find encouragement in knowing that these early witnesses demonstrate for us their willingness to carry out this crucial evangelistic task. The consequences were grave, but they maintained their conviction, their commitment, their courage. What's more, they continued to advance the core message of the faith in the midst of hostility, rejection, ridicule, and marginalization, not just from peers, but from powerful opponents, such as prison guards, high priests, and others. Depending upon where your station in life is, you may not be very popular in your circle of influence. The contemporaries of Christ were not very popular in their day, but they were determined to continue advancing the cause of Christ in a decidedly hostile cultural atmosphere. As such, my encouragement to you is hang in there and continue to be a light, and even when you feel intimidated, rejected, or ridiculed, 
continue to advance the message of the gospel. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's important about what we teach is holding that truth that you may be rejected. You may be persecuted, though likely not in any way these guys were, the apostles were in this passage, but you may have some form of persecution. The important thing for us to think through that we can be in control of is, are we approaching things in a way where it is because of the message of Christ and people despising that we are facing persecution, not because of our approach or our method. So if you go around being, you know, mean to people, being rude, being vitriolic, vitriolic, (laughs) shoving things down people's throats, you know, telling them how dumb they are for not being a Christian or, you know, think of some extreme being actually hateful. If you face persecution there, or people are upset with you, you're not suffering for the cause of Christ at that point, I don't think. It's if you're doing it in a way that is faithful to Christ, that is faithful to the message of the gospel, which may at times mean being direct. So don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we can't be direct. But if you're doing it in a way where you're intentionally inciting people to anger and you know that's what your approach is designed to do, I just don't see that biblically. Peter wasn't intentionally trying to incite them to anger. He's helping them understand why they're compelled, why the apostles are compelled to continue to preach the message, why they must. But he's not trying to incite these guys to violence, to anger. That's not his goal. His goal is to help them understand that Jesus is the Christ. And because of that, it changes everything, that they were witnesses to these things, that they're compelled. They can't do anything other than preach this message because it's true and it matters for everyone. Matt, a moment ago, you said Peter wasn't intentionally trying to be disagreeable or to anger his listeners or his audience. That reminds me of something Greg Kokel of Stand to Reason often says. If you're in a discussion with someone and you are sharing Christ with them, don't allow yourself to get angry because once you allow yourself to get angry, you basically lose credibility and the conversation is over. In fact, uh, he thinks it's best to just end the conversation politely than to continue to engage in heated debate. He says, we want to be collegial in our dealings with others. So I think that's important. Yeah, I think that's absolutely accurate. Yep. We want to get to the point with people that what they're accepting or rejecting is the message of Christ, the message of the gospel, that they're in need of what Jesus offers through his death and resurrection and that his death and resurrection actually happened and that accomplishes that forgiveness that is offered. And there are going to be people who despise that and who think they don't need it. They think they're too good for it. They think that it's going to be filled with things they don't want, rules or ways of changing their life they don't want. There's going to be all kinds of reasons they may. But we want them to reject that message or accept that message. We don't want them to reject some other thing that we present as more significant unintentionally. Some final remarks here as we begin to come to a close. I imagine these passages really hit home for many of our listeners, as with us, when we reflect on our evangelism encounters with people. A main point for me is that evangelism or sharing Christ with others is a trial and error exercise. Lots of times there are bumps in the road, The good news is that we can learn from each encounter what approaches went well, how can we build on that approach, what unexpected situations emerge, how do we respond, what can we take from the experience and use next time. 
These dynamics between the apostles and the religious authorities and bystanders in the context of Christian outreach endeavors depict a real image of how unplanned situations sometimes can potentially disrupt or distract us uh, as we attempt to uh, share Christ with others or as we attempt sharing the truth about Christ. Each of us can probably name individuals or groups of people who are difficult to reach, if not outright resistant to the gospel. I mentioned last time, Matt, my friend who basically put his hand in front of my face and stiff-armed me as he was walking away when I tried to witness to him. So if a friend would do that, imagine what uh, someone you may not know who may be resistant to Christianity, how they might respond to a gospel message attempt or what have you. Uh, There is comfort in knowing that we are not the only ones. We are not the only ones who encounter difficulties, just as this text shows us. So again, I imagine this chapter relates and resonates with a lot of our listeners quite well. I think that was that was good. I, just a very interesting passage here. Some good things that I think we drew out that we can apply today. But to, yeah, dealing with a hostile audience, but offering that common ground that would help them understand why they were going to continue, why they had been preaching the message and why they would continue. And then being able to see the evidential basis behind why they had that conviction and what they were able to do that in spite of that persecution they not only continued, but they maybe even continued with more fervor. And so what an encouragement to us in these days. And I think we can take that away. We saw most of our gospel acronym. They didn't leave with a clear next step because of the situation here, but that was the only thing that I really saw missing from the overall approach. And as I've stressed in the past, it's not that every single one of these is always going to be present in the same way, but these are the general uh, structure and approach that we find. And so we're digging through each of these sections and seeing how it maps on and what do we see emerge and what can we use that we can apply today. So I appreciate you taking the time, Ibrahim. I enjoy doing these. Looking forward to doing more. 